Proactive Athletes is the premier place that empowers student athletes to overcome the challenges of college sports recruitment. Their unparalleled expertise and influential network will guide you towards realizing your fullest potential. At Proactive Athletes, they understand that each student athlete is unique, facing their own set of obstacles. That's why their dedicated team takes the time to comprehend your individual needs, providing a comprehensive hands-on approach tailored to your success. With their personalized attention and unwavering support, they ensure your satisfaction every step of the way. Through their vast network, they have successfully connected with over 2.3 million coaches, giving your child's profile the exposure it deserves. In fact, their student-athletes' profiles have been viewed by an astounding 716,000 coaches, solidifying their reputation as the go-to platform for recruitment. What sets them apart is their data-driven approach, allowing them to make informed decisions that result in better outcomes for their student-athletes. By harnessing the power of data, they maximize your child's chances of success as they embark on the next chapter of their athletic journey. Join the ranks of proactive athletes and unlock your true potential. Let them amplify your talent, connect you with coaches that want you but may not have known about you, and pave the way for your future success. Together, they will defy the odds and ensure that your dreams become a reality. Don't wait any longer. Get proactive in your child's recruitment process today by visiting proactiveathletes.com. And make sure you use Shark Effect 10 for 10% off. All these principles, bro, like literally the coaches and everything that I learned through this game, I use it in life with every single thing that I do. I use the game of football and the life lessons and the lessons I learned from the coaches and the game. I use them in everyday life. Welcome to the Shark Effect. I'm your host, Alex Molden. I'm a former NFL veteran, and now I'm a leadership and personal development speaker and coach. In this podcast, you will hear inspirational and humorous stories from leaders of all walks of life, from current and former professional athletes, coaches, authors, experts, executives, and successful business owners. Discover how these leaders not only overcame obstacles, but also learned core principles that led to their success when leading others. So my next guest on the Shark Effect is actually he's an old teammate, old teammate of mine. We played um, with the Chargers together. Um, I, I was with the Chargers from 2001 to 2002, and um, and I had a chance to uh, to uh, meet up with them. But I had met up with them beforehand when we was in college. So my next guest is uh, Curtis Conway. So Curtis Curtis played. 12 years in the NFL, he was drafted in the first round with the seventh pick in the 1993 draft, um, went on to have a great career, a great career, playing uh, most of his career with the Chicago Bears, um, and then three years with the Chargers, and then he played with the Jets and then the Niners. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that. But after football, with him still continuing, continuing his, his passion, where football was, you know, was, uh, was still available to him by doing broadcasting. And so um, it, it's really cool to be able to see uh, not just teammates, but former uh, athletes, professional athletes, just elite people, like how did they transition and how did that, how did that all pan out? So 
Uh, Curtis, welcome to the Shark Effect, my man. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate you, man. Yeah. So, man, you know, we, you know, we talked a little bit off uh, off camera here, but we was talking about uh, like growing up in South Central. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, for me, you know, I was originally from Detroit, but my dad was in the Army. I ended up in Colorado Springs in 1983. And, man, we was heavily influenced by what was happening on the West Coast. Right. And specifically, <laughs> right where you were, 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 were raised at in South Central, man. And it was such an influence in terms of the hip-hop era and how that kind of started, or at least for us, it started. Um, but I, I want to like hear a little bit of, of your take in and you being growing up right, right there in it. How was that? How did that influence you? Yeah, it was, it was amazing, man. Um, you know, hip hop took, a, uh, I would say took this country by storm, but especially, uh, in those times it went from more positive rap with public enemy and, and groups of that nature. And then it went to you know, more gangster rap, which where I come from in South Central, you're talking the NWAs, you know, the Snoops, uh, you know, the list goes on and on when you talk about uh, hip hop in that era. But I'll go back before hip hop uh, and, and, and the gangster rap took uh, this country by storm. Man, our community was amazing, man. Um, we, you know, for me, I didn't realize I was actually living in poverty. You know, we, because that was our everyday life. You know, I, I came out of the wound and this is where I was, but we made the best out of it. And we saw, you know, uh, you know, men in our community going to work, women going to work, uh, neighborhood looked nice. And then all of a sudden when the factories over by my neighborhood, uh, they started to go under, a lot of people was unemployed. And then it seems like hip hop and the crack epidemic took place almost at the same time. Not to mention we had had gangs, Bloods and Crips in the neighborhood. So it was almost like from the 70s to almost like the mid 80s, um, it was cool and all of a sudden it seemed like everything just happened at one time. You know, the, you know, the selling the crack, gangster rap um, was uh, basically, I would say introduced the country to the crack cocaine epidemic in our community, uh, gangster rap did because the guys in our neighborhood, that's what we rapped about. We rapped about things that went on in our community, things that we knew. And it took the world by storm. And I would say it was a way of life. You know, um, when you talk about the music, um, you have a lot of gangster rappers that necessarily didn't gangbang. Gangbang means actually being involved in the game. Actually, when something is going down, you're actually shooting. You're actually going to go to the gang fight. You're actually jumping in the car to do a drive-by shooting. And then you had guys like myself who was affiliated by association. You didn't necessarily have to be a gang member, but all your friends were gang members because you were associated by the neighborhood you lived in. So for an example, if I went in a different neighborhood that I wasn't supposed to be in or nobody knew me, they would ask me, what gang was I from? And you say, I don't gangbang. Next question, where you live? <laughs> because uh -huh. now it didn't matter if you was a part of a gang, they just wanted to know where you live because they knew once they know where you live, they knew what gang was in that neighborhood and then they attached you to that gang. So whether you wanted to be a part of it or not, you was affiliated by association because you grew up in that neighborhood. Now, with that being said, 
the, the rap game just blew it to a different level because everybody wanted to be, whereas this is what we lived every day. Like you couldn't wear, like my high school colors was red and I grew up in a blood hood, which we wore red, but getting to school, I had to go through crib neighborhoods. Now I was pretty popular in high school. So it boils down to this is a popular football player. We know he lives in blood neighborhood. Not to mention he's wearing red coming through our neighborhood, which has my football stuff on it, but they didn't care. You had a red in, in, in the crib neighborhood. You was just being disrespectful. So you had to be mindful of when you were on the bus and you're going through these different neighborhoods, you had to know every single neighborhood you were in and one and, and neighborhoods will be divided based on the traffic light. You can be on the east side of a traffic light and then cross that light and you'll be in a totally different neighborhood with a totally different color. And you had to know what neighborhood you were in. So, you know, we always say, man, we had basic rules of the game that you better have known. And this is as a child, we were not just high school. I'm talking about eight, nine, 10 years old. You had to know the rules of the game to survive. Wow. Okay. So, so how did you learn those rules? I mean, we lived them. We saw them, you know, guys that were older than us told us, you know, they, they kind of, it was almost like anything else. Like in football, you take the rookie up under your wing and you teach him the ropes. Well, that's kind of how it was in our neighborhood. You know, the gang members taught us the ropes. The drug dealers taught us the ropes. They taught us what to wear, what not to wear, how to move and how not to move, you know, what to look for and what not to look for. Uh, it was all just passed down from the older, uh, you know, what we call the older homies. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And because of you was popular because I'm sure you was like the fastest dude or the best, <laughs> best athlete, then you got a you got a pass. Absolutely. And I think that's what a lot of people don't really understand. But the people that actually were involved, sports was our way out. You know, I tell people this all the time. I live in a neighborhood now where they're my, my kids have a bunch of a lot of things they can do outside of playing football, basketball and rapping. Well, these are facts. In my neighborhood, you know, even in school, you know, you didn't have a lot of after-school after activities. So you had to play sports. I was very fortunate that God gave me physical gifts that gave me an advantage playing basketball and football, which was speed, being able to catch, you know, uh, peripheral vision in football and basketball, things of that nature where when I got on the court or when I got on the track or when I got on the football field, I was pretty good. And by being pretty good, I was able to play with the older kids. So the older guys, they could be straight hardcore killers. But when it came down to playing sports, they allowed me to play with them. And from that on, you know, it's almost come, you become a, a neighborhood legend, you know, because you got this, you know, nine, 10 year old kid out here playing with this, these 15, 16 year old gang members. And, you know, you're winning. You're, you're just as good as they are. And some you're better than. So it becomes one of those deals where uh, every time a basketball game was about to go down, they come looking for you and you're like the youngest one. And, you know, it's probably like six of us, like that's my age. And then yeah. the big teenagers that come and grab me. And it's like, man, we about to go play these guys on this block, man. Come on. And you find yourself going with them. And again, affiliated by association. I'm just going to play basketball or play a football game, but these dudes are hardcore game bangers. But to me, they're just my buddies that grew up in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? So yeah. it, it, was a, it was a weird situation, man. But football, sports definitely gave you a pass because, you know, although games outside of our neighborhood wouldn't give you a pass unless they really knew. Like in high school, 
it was way bigger than when I was in Pop Warner. So at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I couldn't just go in another neighborhood. But in high school, I can go in the Crip neighborhood and everybody knew, no, that's Curtis Conway. He played for Hartford High School. He cool. Although he live in the blood neighborhood and, he, you know, I got a pass because they knew I wasn't in their neighborhood to cause any problems. Gotcha. Gotcha. He cool. That was the pass. Yeah, he yeah. cool. He, he played football. That's he played ball, you know, so yeah. he got a pass. That's what's up. Okay. Man, um, so I'm interested, you know, you're talking about, you know, with sports and whatnot and, you know, doing my background on you. Um, I'm interested to hear this. You went... So, so number one, what was your your passion in high school? Was it was it track? Was it basketball? Was it football? Was it a combination? You know what? I I, I would have to say passion. It was tough, man, because I I was really good at focusing on what I was doing at that time, and it was always the best thing going. The problem was with basketball and track in high school, I couldn't play for my high school after the ninth grade because my track coach, I mean, we were really good in track. We had some dogs come before us, Henry Thomas, Michael Marsh, guys like that put our school on the map in track. So I was kind of the baby coming in and our track coach took track really serious. So here I come from football season, they wanted me to run track. So I'm out there, but I'm like, look, I'm a hoop player. And I would say I would probably lean more toward hoop because basketball was probably the only thing that I would sit there and watch on TV. And even in high school, man, like on Friday nights, I would play uh, a football game. Man, you best believe Saturday morning I was in the hood playing basketball at the park or at the school. Like I wasn't missing our hoop games. And I'm talking about, you know, I'm an All-American quarterback and here I am, you know, just, you know, play Friday night lights. And then Saturday morning, I'm back in the hood playing hoop. And I mean, you know, in hoop, it was like one of those deals where you better get your best five because if you lose, you might not see the court again. Yeah. So I actually looked forward to like right after the basketball games, man, I used to go with my, um, a guy that I call my uncle. I used to go with him all the time and, you know, Friday nights and then Saturday mornings, man, we'd get up, go in the hood and play hoop all day. Mm. So yeah. I would go, I would leave basketball to answer the question. In basketball. Okay, so here's a, you know, like it's now I'm doing my research, man. How did you go from your junior year running a 10-8-5 to then your senior year running a 10-3-2? I ain't never heard of that much improvement in one year. Well, actually, I ran faster my junior year than 10.85. My fastest my junior year was actually 10.6, 10.5. 10, okay. 10.6, 10.5. And um, the jump came because my sophomore year, I actually got hurt. And so I, I couldn't run in the statement. So my junior year was a slow process. And in high school, we, we trained from the quarter down. So it didn't matter if you came in and all you ran was 100. We trained from the quarter down because our school was known for the mile relay. So no matter what you did, you had to train from the quarter down, which means you're not going to do a lot of speed work unless you solidify the 100 as your race. Well, my track coach, Archie Amy, and Kai Courtney saw that I could be a quarter miler if I really focused on it, which lined up with what they really wanted. Now, remember, I never ran track until I got to high school, so nobody knew anything about 
me running, they saw a fast football player. They didn't know I can actually be a quarter miler. And anybody will tell you, most football players don't go from football and jump in the track and become a quarter miler. Most quarter milers try to play football because they think they're fast, not the other way around, because a quarter miler, man, the quarter mile just training for that is no joke. So they wanted me to be a quarter miler. So I really didn't focus as much on the training in the hundred until mm-hmm. maybe, I mean, we always did sprint work, but I didn't focus on that until I would say going into my junior year. And that was because we always structured our track team to win state. They didn't necessarily need me to win a quarter because we had a guy named Travis Hanna who also played at USC with me. Oh yeah, my, I remember. And he was my receiver. And this dude could flat out fly in the quarter mile. So we were kind of the same sprinters, but he was already known as a sprinter. He was in his senior year. I was a junior. So that whole year, we kind of, our coach kind of strategically, every meet we went, I ran the one and the two. Once it started getting close to CIF and state, and Travis always stayed in the quarter, we always ran the sprint relay and the mile relay, four by one, four by four. And that was kind of the strategic plan all the way to state. Travis is a year ahead of me. So he graduated in 88. So I'm coming back in 89. So I had to do everything then. It was yeah. just like I had to do from, from the 100 all the way to the 400 in both relays. So that focus and that training, I mean, I was literally doing everything. And that's why my time just went from, you know, 10-5, 10 to 10-3. My, my 400, I mean, one of my fastest splits was in the state meet. I ran uh, 45-3 split on the mile relay and part of it was because I got pushed. I didn't have Travis to make up mm. for a lot of things. I mean, he really solidified the 400 and, and, and he was our anchor on the mile relay in my senior year. I had to do, I had to, you know, do a lot of the work. So by that time too, I was a little more focused. Um, I understood what I had to do in order for us to win the state. So that whole senior year, man, it was really, one of those deals where I felt like I was getting ready for the Olympics when we were just really getting ready for the state meet. Mm, mm, okay. So then going from, from uh, high school and then to college. And so, you know, we talked about this before, Curtis, when, when you were a, a junior and, you know, you're talking about that, that neighborhood legend. Well, I heard about this neighborhood legend <laughs> because <laughs> I'm going to Oregon and a lot of our, our uh, players are, you know, my teammates, they was from Southern Cal. Right. Yep. So we're playing USC. I'm a little pipsqueak registered freshman who's had a little bit, a little bit of success against some, some, you know, not that great of teams. And then now all of a sudden now we're facing USC. And then all my, my buddies, they're telling me about USC. They're telling me about Curtis, they talk about Johnny Morton and like, you know, I'm 18 years old. You know, I'm already, no, I can watch the film. I said, damn, that's a, <laughs> that the dude can run. <laughs> and, but then now I'm hearing the artist, yeah, man, he ran a 4-2. He was, he jumped uh, 50 inches. He, this is, is just, I'm going to the game. I'm like, man, damn, I'm already like in my own head before the first snap. 
<laughs> hey, and that's enough to age, especially when you, you think about that. That age too, man. You got you know how we talked as kids, man, in yeah. the locker room, man. That dude, so everything was just over the top, you know. Everything was just bigger, right? Everything was right. like I thought by the time I faced you, man, you was six six, <laughs> two twenty. <laughs> Let them tell it. Right. But, uh, but I remember, man, going into that game and, you know, you don't remember, but I just like it was my you were a junior. You were a Heisman hopeful, sure to be first round pick. And I'm going up against you. I'm facing you. And I'm like, I'm trying to be cool, trying to do all this, say all the right things, think to myself the right things. But, man, I was just like I was man. I gave up three three tugs that day. Let me see. One to you, one to uh, Johnny, and another one to you because you returned a punt. Returned the punt. Return. <laughs> you yeah. returned a punt. Um, but uh, yeah, man, what what kind of gave you success, at least at the at the college um, aspect of it? You know, of your football career. And yeah, you know, I'm, you know, we talk about your NFL success, but I want to talk about like college because mm-hmm. like you only played what two two and a half years. A year and a half a wide receiver. A, a year and a half a wide receiver. Being and a quarterback. And a yeah, and I was two and a, I was I played basically three seasons. I was at USC my true freshman year, sophomore, and then I left after the football season my junior year that season. Yeah, what man? What gave you that success? I mean, besides your God-given um, athleticism, mm-hmm. what else well, gave you success? Well. I'm going to take you back. Uh, I want to bridge that gap between high school and college. Alex, a lot of people don't know that I didn't, um, I didn't go to college right out of high school. You know, I was one of the most highly recruited quarterbacks in the country. Just won the state meet. I was like second in the nation in the hundred, third in the 200, somewhere around there. And what happened was I didn't pass the SAT on time. I took it three times and I failed it. And so that last time I had an opportunity my senior year and I didn't pass it. You know, and, and part of the reason was we didn't have all the prep SAT courses that was available for free. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't afford to go to these Princeton reviews and things of that nature at the time. And, you know, that whole year after I graduated from high school, man, I was uh, literally working construction, bro. And I was oh. going to college, taking a few courses to once I did pass the test to get in college. So man, you know, that I took a whole year away from like, I didn't pick up a football that year. I didn't, I didn't put on a pair of spikes and go run. Only thing I was doing was hooping on the weekends with the homies. And I finally passed the test in September, the year after I graduated, which was July of 89. It's funny because the very next time I took it, it was September or early October of 89. And I passed it, but by that time it was too late and SC wouldn't allow me to come in school. So I just had to sit out and go to school, take some courses and work construction for that whole year before I entered USC in the fall of 1990. And mm. so to answer your question, that was a huge part of my determination in college because man, it was so hard for me to watch college football that year. Because, I mean, here I am, one of the top athletes in the country, and I'm watching all these guys on TV, and I'm like, wait a minute, this dude out here balling, I'm at the crib. Yeah. Like, man, that was one of the worst feelings I ever had because from Pop Warner all the way up until that time, I was always getting a pat on the back because I was always that great athlete. Now, that talent is on ice right now. Mm. And everybody that I know 
that I'm watching and I'm better than, they actually out there balling. So that was another motivational piece to say, if they out there doing it, man, wait till I get there. And so I had this chip on my shoulder because I was getting dogged in the media, man. Like it was like dumb athlete. He had all this and now look at him. And so, man, I had a really a chance to sit back at home with my grandmother, man, and really look at who was my real friends, what coaches really had my back. Like nobody came around, Alex, nobody. I mean, nobody, there was not one cat I went to high school with came over my house that year I sat out. It was not one coach that I ran for in high school or I played for in high school that called me that year I was sitting out because my, I was useless for them. You know, I wasn't scoring touchdowns. I wasn't winning state champions and everybody else was doing their thing, my buddies. So I had a lot of time I just spent, man. And when I had an opportunity to get to college, you know, it was just like, I'm going to show everybody. I'm going to show everybody and especially the media because the media was calling me dumb. And I'm like, damn, like I got good grades, but I didn't pass the test. And we all know what that SAT is about. Yeah, yeah. The moment I go to Princeton Review and I study for the test, I pass it on the first one. And so, you know, once I got on the football field, that was going to take care of itself. Because for me, growing up, like I told you, uh, when I was a kid, I always played against kids older than me. So I always had this thing in my head from the time I was a kid. So since I was 19 years old, if there's anybody within a three to four year age gap between me, I'm going to dominate you because that's what I'm used to. And I'm used to playing against the hardcore athletes who didn't take a light on me in the hood. Like I was the kid, I was the baby, but you know, we play tackle and we play, we play football in the street. Guess what? If I get caught by that sideline or that curve, I'm getting, I'm getting the crap knocked out of me. And these are my guys, 15, 16 years old playing basketball. I was the littlest dude on the court, but I was just as athletic and they didn't take it lightly on me. So I had an advantage, bro, mentally when I got to high school and college, because in my mind, I'm playing against some of the hardcore athletes that nobody's going to see because they're wrapped up in the streets, but they're just as athletic or better than me, but they were in the streets. So nobody's going to be able to see them. I always kept that in my head. Anybody I went against, mm -hmm. no matter who you were, you could be all American. You could be anybody. I just felt like you couldn't guard me because of basically how I was raised by the streets playing sports. Yeah. So you use that as not just a chip, but you use that, man, to, to fuel you. Yeah, it was real. Because, again, you start thinking about some of those guys. And then you start looking at the guy. You're like, wait a minute, man, this dude my age? Or this dude two years older than me? And, again, it's a weird kind of psychological edge that I used to give myself. But at the same time, that was, that was my way of saying, man, this dude's a dude. But, damn, he ain't but a year or two or three years older than me. So, I ain't gonna give him too much respect, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna go out yeah. there and, and show him what I'm about, man. And that was kind of my that was kind of my mentality. That's that's good. That's real good, man. So having having that success in the college, in the college world, and then now transferring that to the NFL, coming out herald, you know, heralded USC Trojan receiver being drafted. I'm interested to hear, like, man, when you went to the Bears, what were the expectations when you're your first, let's say your first year? Were you supposed to come in and just set the league on fire? What was that? What was that like? Hey, man, I, that was honestly, man, that was probably that was probably one of the worst years of my, my football career. Mm. Uh, 
even being drafted as the seventh pick, uh, what what a lot of people didn't realize when I got drafted is I was drafted on pure talent. I probably shouldn't have been the first receiver taken because, quote, unquote, I only had a year and a half experience as a wide receiver. I went to USC as a quarterback. So my first year and a half at USC, I was predominantly behind the center and returning kicks as I was a backup. And then they moved me to wide receiver midway through my my sophomore year. And then I ended up playing my whole junior year and then left my junior year and being drafted to the Bears. Now, you add track onto that. I never had an offseason to train for football. So every time football season was over, I went to track. And generally, we were always in Pac-12 and NC2A championships with goals all the way to June. So to take an offseason for spring ball as a wide receiver in the summer, I never had that until I was actually getting ready for the draft, mm-hmm. where I can actually work on and focus on my pure wide receiver skills. So I was really drafted on speed and true athletic ability. I wasn't even the best receiver on my team. You know, I would, that was Johnny Morton. Johnny Morton would run, I mean, route running, man, he would run circles around my head. He was more of a pure receiver than I was. I was a great athlete. Now when you transition that to being the number one pick, going to a city like Chicago that was known to run the football, the first thing I thought was like, man, Chicago, like they don't throw the ball in Chicago. That's a running defense team, man. You know, so I wasn't really happy with the selection in itself. Then when I got there, I mean, the city of Chicago, the fans are amazing, bro. Like they just, they love the Bears, no matter what the record was. And I was the one that was going to come save the day. I mean, I mean, you got to think about it, man. You know how the draft is, the pre-draft. They, they blow you up like you're Superman. <laughs> and I get there, bro, and I'm like, man, this is a whole nother element for me because I never left home at all. Like, mm-hmm. literally, SC was in yeah. my neighborhood. So I never left to get on the plane to go anywhere outside of traveling. So when I'm in Chicago... I feel like the world just came on me. That was the first time I felt pressure playing football. And it wasn't mm. fun. It wasn't fun playing football. It was more, it was more a business because yeah. this was the first time my family members are not at the game. I was going to playing playing games basically like a businessman. Like I gotta go and do this. And I gotta save the team. I gotta save Chicago and I gotta save the Bears. And it was really, really hard, man. I wasn't polished as a wide receiver. Uh, my routes was terrible. I wouldn't say terrible, but because I got away with a lot of stuff because I was an athlete, but nothing where I was threatening anybody. Everybody was scared of my speed, but the fans and everybody felt because I was picked so high. Hey, when here, all that. They're like, wait a minute, bro. You first receiver taker. You got to come out here and make it happen. Yeah. And so it really didn't happen like way. And so, man, the media again was on me. Um, the fans, you know, at, at some point in the season, it was like, when is this kid going to show up? Like, he's supposed to be all that. And to be honest with you, I wasn't, bro. I mean, I showed little spots, but I wasn't. And it was tough. It was really tough. That was probably the hardest year of football I ever had to deal with. Yeah, that rookie year is tough. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it was only because of the expectations, because now you're in a city that loves football. Yeah. And they expected me to come in and make it happen. Now, I think if we were better as a team, it wouldn't, I wouldn't, or even, even as an offense, I wouldn't have had as much focus on me, but because we wasn't as good on offense and we were kind of conservative, you know, everybody was waiting for that speed and that, that, that big receiver to come out here and make plays. And that just didn't happen. My rookie year. Mm. Who was, who was the head coach then? Dave Wonstadt. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay. So now, so you're in the league and now you're facing, 
you know, you, you're facing better uh, secondaries, better cornerbacks. Mm-hmm. What was some of the, uh, the things that they would, would do that, that kind of gave you problems? Was it, I don't think they were that much faster than you. Right. What were some of the things? Man, they did the. You know, <laughs> you know, you know how crafty y'all get, man. Once you once you become a vet, like man, you start to you know how to manipulate guys with speed, and you know how to do different things to them and take them out their game. Um, you know, I would say early on, man, it was it was really I was in my own way because I was thinking a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I was trying to run the perfect routes because I didn't have enough time really to pause myself. So I was trying to do everything perfect. And that slowed me down. A lot of people don't realize when you're out there thinking, that four two now becomes four five, and that wasn't what I was how I was used to playing at SC. I was just used to I knew the playbook, I knew what I needed to do, and it was just go play. Whereas in the league, I mean, man, and, and you know, in college as well as pros, you don't really disguise a lot of coverages. So when you get to the pros, man, you can line up as a receiver and see one coverage pre snap, post snap. They go to something totally different, the control chaos, and all of a sudden your route changes based on what the defense does after the snap. And I wasn't used to that, man. So I was playing a lot slower than I was. I was thinking a lot. And by that, guys were able to stay in my hip and play me. And I just really wasn't that effective because I wasn't necessarily – I would say a pure wide receiver where I can recognize that. Now you put me behind a center, I can recognize that, which was crazy. But I wasn't running forward and having to change up anything. At quarterback, okay, I see cover two, and this is my first read. They go to cover three. Okay, I already know where I need to go. Whereas a receiver, I'm trying to run full speed and react off of all this. It was unfamiliar territory. So that was really, I would say, the hardest thing. Other than that, man, just athletically, I never really, I can honestly say I never really had an issue with DBs early Mm -hmm. uh, in my career, other than the fact that I was playing slow because of my lack of knowledge of the game. And I always tell people, man, I I actually love defense. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I played defense in, in high school too. And I actually love defense because I think it's the hardest thing to do is to stop guys like myself athletically and when you can do that man disguising defenses and doing all this trickery to get in the offense head man I kind of looked at that and said man this this is crazy that they're able to do this because I never experienced in college and that's what made me become a student of the game it's like wait a minute they're confusing me and guys are able to do certain things to uh d me up like okay something ain't right here I ain't used to this so that, that forced me to become a student of the game Man, it's so interesting, man, to hear you talk about like knowledge and, and being a student of the game. And I'm always looking for, for different principles that I can I can learn and I can share that with others no matter what their background is. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that, man, not having that knowledge early on actually slowed you down. But then oh, yeah. once you once you got that knowledge, then you was able to play at your fullest potential. And I not, think only that's, that, Alex, not only that, once I got that knowledge, believe it or not, and you can probably attest to this, the game slowed down. I was able to slow the game down. So now I didn't have to run 4-2-4-3 every play because I understood, okay, they're playing zone. This is not a man coverage here. So I don't have to worry about beating the DB because if he's playing press and I'm recognizing cover three, 
he's go, he's just playing press three. He's going to run to his zone. And when I break off, I ain't got to really worry about breaking too hard and separating because he's going to continue to go to his zone and there's going to be a linebacker underneath me. Once I understood all that, the game slowed down. Mm-hmm. And I was able to kind of preserve energy, run a certain way, scare DBs. That's why I always tell people to this day, man, talent, speed can only take you so far. Once you understand what the defense job is, it's going to make your job so much easier as a wide receiver. Mm, I love that principle. Like once you understand the different um, roles that, that yeah. other people are playing or what they play, then you can start to kind of settle in and start to kind of pick pick the situation apart and Absolutely. be and be more effective. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you notice in my career, I blew up my third year. You saw progress my second year, but I really became that guy. And I have to give a lot of my credit, bro, to Jeff Graham, a guy named Jeff Graham I played with and, uh, in Chicago. Are we, yeah, we played together. With, we yeah, played together in yeah. San Diego. JG, yeah, right. man, honestly, he had probably 80% to do with me being so effective my junior, I mean, my third year in Chicago. I've never had somebody come to me that, again, around my age and tell me what I'm doing wrong and how I'm playing the game. JG told me, see, what well, you're not using your speed. And I'm like, wait a minute, man, I'm, I'm all out every play. But the way he was explaining things to me, you got to remember, I think Jeff is two years ahead of me. So he would already been through everything. Mm-hmm. JG taught me how to run routes against certain things, what to look for. And not to mention, he was a dog within himself. So he took a lot of pressure off of me. You know, they had to make sure where they had to know where 81 was my my third year. I was the number two. And I had a huge year because I saw a lot of one-on-one coverage. Um, And so that was by that time, nobody in the league was going to guard me one-on-one with the knowledge I had by my third year and the speed and and my physical ability. By that time, game was going to be over. But you, I had to have Jeff Graham on the other side because I still don't know if I could have handled double coverage that year. Mm-hmm. Had to wait to that next year where I saw a lot of double coverage and I understood and knew how to run routes versus double coverage because I knew what their assignment was. But JG, man, him being on the field, his performance, him teaching me had a lot to do with my progress my third year. Look at that. So you have somebody who's just a couple years older than you kind of take you, take you under – you're under his wing mm-hmm. to help develop you. And then when I got to, I mean, we got a chance to play together with the Chargers. I would see that from you. And mm-hmm. you taking like the Tim DeWhites of the world, the um, other younger receivers, and you dispensing your knowledge and sharing it with them. I think that's that's so cool, man, to be a, use those relationships to help grow yourself, but then also pass it down. Yeah, you know, it was crazy because because everybody thought I was so fast and had great athletic ability. Man, I literally, every receiver that was on teams that I played with, man, I took something from everybody. Bobby Ingram, man, I, I probably took a quarter of his stuff. Uh-huh. Ricky Probe, I probably took a quarter yeah. of his stuff. Jeff Graham, I tried to take everything he had, yeah. you know. And then, you know, when you start talking about even, even guys, you remember Rache Carwell? Yeah, passed away. You know, he passed away earlier. Even guys that were younger than me, 
it was certain things that they would do in practice. I'm like, hmm, okay, let me try that. How does that fit with me? I would never tell anybody, but in my head, I was always stealing, man. <laughs> I love. That. I was always stealing, bro. So, but I would pass that same knowledge back on, man, because the hardest thing, and Alex, you know this as well as anybody, the hardest thing to do in football once you become a vet, especially once you get around eight, nine, ten years, is to actually teach the guys in the room the stuff you know, because they're trying to not only take your position, but that's your money, bro. That's right. <laughs> and as a teammate, you got to teach these guys how to take food off your table. Ain't that crazy? That's kind of contradicting, man. Yeah. Like, nah, I ain't telling you nothing, bro. <laughs> I had so much confidence in myself, and I understood where a guy helped me. And this was my third year. Guys helped, a guy helped me. Jeff Graham helped me elevate my game. And I think to that detriment, man, it, 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 it kind of hurt the Bears because the following year, Jeff Graham, we didn't bring him back because our both of our contracts was up. Mm. And I only, I really believe the only reason they signed me over Jeff, because they didn't want to sign us both, because we both were in high demand. I was a restricted free agent. He was unrestricted. And mm. I think the only reason I was signed before him, because I still think he was a better, even though I had a huge year, I still think he was a better pure receiver than I was, is because they drafted me. And, then, and, mm. and Jeff Graham wasn't drafted by the Bears. So think about it. You got two receivers up. We both have huge years. You got to keep the guy you drafted with the seventh pick of the draft. You can't just let him go as a third as a third guy. And I had a big offer on the table from another team that they had to match. So they had to, mm. they were forced to, to uh, cause I was restricted. So they were forced to match that to keep me. And by having to match me, you know, they say they didn't have enough money, but we, you know, we know <laughs> that money, so, yeah. Yeah. they could have signed my boy Jeff Graham back, man. And we could have, we could have, Man, we could have had a, a heck of a duel for the rest of our career, man, because I felt so comfortable playing with him. And like we talked about passing that knowledge on to the younger guys, man, you, you have to do that because Jeff Graham had a huge impact on my career. Mm. Mm. Tell me about, man, best qualities of, of any coach you, you ever had. You know, no matter, it doesn't have to be a head coach, positional coach, whatever level. What mm. were some of those qualities that kind of made you become who you are? Um, I'm going to start with Pop Warner. There's two major things. One started in Little League football. Man, we had some of the – our coaches was hardcore, bro. Like, playing in Inglewood, all strong black men. And we had, and I grew up without a father, so I always looked up to them as my fathers. That was the closest I ever got. Um uh, and they were tough on me, man. Like, no matter how good I was, they didn't play, bro. Like, they really they really got in our stuff, and we were really good. And the work ethic was so easy for me to work when I got to every level because I just – that's how I was trained. That's how, from the first time I put on cleats, playing in Inglewood, that's what it was. I mean, we got cussed at 8, 9, 10 years old. So to go to high school and the coach get on you was like – you're like, okay, I'm used to way worse than this. So, you know, yeah. it wasn't nothing for a high school coach or a college coach to jump down my throat about something because my skin was so thick by that time. And then where I grew up, it, it was like, okay, I get where you're trying to go, but don't try to go too hard because I you, you're failing at that. Just let me know what I got to gotcha. do. But that was that taught me, it allowed me to be able to be coached. 
Because if you don't have thick skin in this game, bro, you can get broken by a coach if he's getting on your butt a little too much. That was never going to happen with me. It also, it, I was that guy that if you did that, it made me better because it pushed me. When you thought I wasn't going to do something or you thought I couldn't do something, that made me want to do it because that's how my Pop Warner coaches motivated me. They knew I could do whatever I needed to do on the field. But they will make up stuff. Oh, you can't do this on this dude. Oh, you this, you that. You did this, but you ain't do that. And I'm like, it was always pushing me. And they were like, it wasn't as calm and nice as I'm talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when I got to these other levels, man, like being able to be coached was very easy. Now, I will say this. the I would say coaching-wise, once I got to college and NFL, Marty Schottenheimer, to me, was probably the best coach I had outside of Herm Edwards. And they were great for two different reasons. Marty Schottenheimer, and you know, because you were there. Well, you were there with Marty, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Marty forced me to study the game even more than what I, what was this thing? Attention to detail. Did, yeah. He wanted you to know if there was a piece of lint on the ground, he wanted you to tell him, how did that piece of lint get there? That's how detailed he was. And the thing that I loved about it, it wasn't just me. Junior, rest in peace. Rodney Harrison. He went to every position and he was hands-on with everybody. And that's the one thing I can remember that helped me elevate my game was in film room now, you know, I'm in my 10th season, Alex. I'm thinking like, damn, what more can I learn at this point, especially from a coach? Yeah. Just details. So it, it forced me to even look at things a little more deeper when we were playing against teams. So, again, I take back to when I was – that was my 10th year. Speed was slowing down. Physical gifts was slowing down. But the game was still slow to me because Marty forced me to now take my study – to a whole nother level and get even more detail, which meant when I got on the field, the game was still slow. So I didn't have to get faster. Although I was getting slower, I was still playing at that same level because Marty forced me and taught me how to look more into what I was trying to study. I love that, man. I would, man, Marty, do you remember when he used to be like, hey, practice is going to end at 5.32, not 5.31, now, 533 at 532. And he would be a no matter where you are, blow the horn. Detail. And Alex, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what's funny. My wife, she laughs at me because I'm like this at home, bro. I tell my kids in the bed at 10, no, I want lights out at 10, not at 10 on one. I'm finding you. You know the fines. You walk in that meeting a minute late, you're going to hear that ching ching. Yes, that's right. A couple hundred thousand dollars. That's a hundred or a thousand dollars right there. So, all these principles, bro, like literally the coaches and everything that I learned through this game, I use it in life with every single thing that I do. I use the game of football and the life lessons and the lessons I learned from the coaches and the game. I use them in everyday life. Uh, that's beautiful. And actually, that that really goes to, you know, one of my questions I wanted to ask you is like, what is some of the, uh, can you share like a story or a principle, a big one that you live by? Let's say just for right now, just at home, mm -hmm. what is a principle like when you're you're raising your kids or, you know, you're interacting or, um, you know, with your wife? Like, mm -hmm. what are some, some tips? Yeah. Team, the whole team concept. And I give you an example. Like, for anybody 
that knows who I'm married to. I'm married to a very strong athlete, mentally and physically. And we both share a lot of things in common. Now, we're both- the, uh, Hold on, Curtis. For, for those of my listeners who don't know, who are you married to? I am married to Layla Ali, the daughter of the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. Okay. And so, um, I use teamwork because we are a team. Like some people just look at man and wife and that's how who we are. But for me as the leader of the household, I look at us as a team. And so my wife is very, like she's an entrepreneur. Like my wife will not stop. This is who she is. She's not trying to be, she doesn't want to be. Her natural instinct is to work. That's who she is. Same with me. So in our relationship, I always go back to football. I'm a wide receiver. You know how we are. We out there for seven <laughs> plays, bro. We might get six, seven targets. Like I want the rock all the time. So in my relationship, in most relationships, we want things to be our way, our mm. principles, the way we were, we were raised, where we grew up. But in a team setting, it all comes down to what's best for the team. And so we, and I'm gonna give you an example of where we are right now. Like I certain things that I want to do that, would prevent the team from winning, but it would benefit me. I would get nine catches for 150 and two touchdowns and go to the Pro Bowl, but we're trying to win the Super Bowl. So what my wife is trying, what my wife is doing is better fit for our family going into this part of our life, which I call going into this game. So unfortunately for Curtis, in order to win this game and get to the Super Bowl, I got a block. I got blocked, bro. I can't catch. I want to catch the rock. I want to do me. But the bigger picture is I want to win and I want to go to Super Bowl. The bigger picture is I want our family to be successful. And right now where my wife is and where I am, she is the one who is going to win the game for us. So my selfishness as a husband, yeah, do I want to go out and coach and do more TV and do me? Absolutely. We all got that selfishness in us, but I'm a married man and we are a team. And so when we sit at the table, me and my wife, we sit down, we literally sit down like I'm in a team meeting and we check off the boxes of what's important. What, what did we come to the table with in terms of how we were going to be in our marriage and with our kids? And right now we, we said at the very beginning, we're not going to have nannies. No matter what happens in our life, money is not that important to where we can't be here for our kids. And right now, I have to be the one who sacrificed my career because that's what's best for the team. Ultimately, for this game, guess what? I'm not going to catch eight for 150. And yeah, I'm going to be probably be a little bitter in the first quarter because I ain't touched the rock. <laughs> you know, a month might go by and I might be feeling sorry for myself because I ain't coaching. But in my mind, the bigger picture is to win the Super Bowl. Mm. And so I take those principles from team and apply it to my marriage because at the end of the day, what's the ultimate goal? We all want to win, but we are selfish. You know, you want everybody to throw the ball your way so you can get two picks. Guess what? We're going to throw it the opposite way. You're going to get frustrated because come on this side so I can get some action. But guess what? Nah, it ain't that thing. So I would say that was one of the things where it's really genuine and actually really works for me is to look at those principles in terms of a team setting and what we're trying to get accomplished as a team, 
and apply those principles to my marriage. And, and really, man, it, it helps because you're no matter what nobody says, you're going to get in your feelings. You, you're going to want to do what you want to do. Yeah. But if you keep your eye on something that's bigger than you, just like in football, you keep your eye on something that's bigger than you and just do your job, which is my job is being, you know, I still do my broadcasting in the spring, but right now I'm the homeschool teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the homeschool teacher. <laughs> I want to go out there and coach. I want to do my thing. But hey, 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 I'm the janitor. I'm the janitor. <laughs> You're the homeschool teacher. I'm the janitor at my house. Yeah, you, you get it, man. So that's that's pretty that's pretty much what it is, man. Is is and it's really it's really been great for for me because mm -hmm. when I do get in my feelings and I feel like I, I want to go out there and be productive and coach and do more broadcasting, it's like okay, what's the ultimate goal? Win the Super Bowl. What's the ultimate goal for our family to be as strong as possible? So right now, my wife, she's the one gonna get all the touchdowns. She gonna she's the one gonna get all the accolades, and I have to. You know, I have to block. I have to block you here. You got to block, baby. Catch the rock. I got to block so she can score. You know what I mean? I love it, man. I, man, I feel a. This is a book. You got a book coming out, man. Because the way how you explain that so succinctly, man, that's that's uh, that's pretty cool, man. Man, I appreciate it. Trust me, man. It, it, it was a lot of praying and meditating and quiet time, man. Yeah, you go. You know, we're naturally. My wife is the same way. We're naturally go getters. You wouldn't have made it to the NFL. If you wasn't a go-getter, if you didn't know how to get through hard times, if you, you know, if you didn't have that self-motivation in you to go be the best corner you can be, we all have that. But again, once you become a part of a team, and that's in anything, bro. Yeah. That's if you're working for a corporation. Everybody want to be the CEO. Everybody wants the big money. But guess what? You got to work your way to that. And it may not be the game or the season for you to be there. So do your job the best you can do at that moment for the team. And I always felt like everything is going to pan itself out if you're doing it for the right reasons. No matter whether you get your individual accolades or not, you'll be able to see things in a different light. And again, I guess I've been doing this, man, since me and Layla decided that we were going to get married and have kids. And we came to the conclusion that we're not going to have names. Somebody has to take the back seat to the, uh, to the team and put their, and lead their careers, you know, on ice until it's necessary yeah no i love that man that's uh yeah that's sacrifice that's what that's what any good team you know won't care what marriage. And, and what yeah <laughs> marriage you know it's yeah. uh there's gonna be some sacrifices so man hey so with my you know my shark effect the podcast you know i like to i ask questions that that kind of uncover things that that make top performers top performers mm -hmm. and so you know, I just want to scrape the plate, man. Is there any any other tips? Because you've given us some some jewels, mm -hmm. but is there any other tips that you can be able to give my listeners um, that can that can help them be the best version of themselves, no matter in what environment? Don't listen to the outside noise. One thing we have to understand, and this is just my the way I look at life. I have a son. And I had somebody literally at three years old watch him run and say, man, I want to invest some stock in the hell. They saw this kid run. And not to mention, his grandfather is Muhammad Ali. His mother is Layla Ali. His father is Curtis Conway. Immediately, everybody thinks, oh, man, this is going to be the craziest athlete we ever seen. 
this dude has no desire to play sports whatsoever. And so my job as a father is to see him every day grow. What is his purpose? God puts, just like God put something in me, you, Layla, Muhammad, to be the champions in sports, God put something in him to do whatever he's supposed to do in life. My job as a father is not to push him to football. My job is to watch him grow, see what he enjoys doing without thinking about money, and push him in that direction so whatever he's doing is going to make money because he's going to enjoy doing it and not forcing him to do something that the world is telling him to do or daddy's telling him who to be. No, it's not about me. It's about him. And so with each individual that I run across, we allow social media, the world, money, dictate who we are. And I tell people today, the only reason I was successful in football, not because I had talent, because you know, Alex, as well as I know, we even played with some talented dudes that didn't make it. I love football. I didn't like it. I loved it. Even when I was hurt, I wanted to play. Even when things were tough, I still wanted to play. So I take that, again, that mentality, and I apply it to anybody in life. Stop doing what you think the world wants you to do. Everybody want to rap. Everybody want to be athletes. And some guys... They waste their life chasing that, not realizing God put something else special in you that you haven't even tapped into. Mm. You know, somebody created the pen. Somebody created a little bit of everything and they made money from it. Everybody didn't make money through athletics. So do you, be you. Don't worry about what somebody else is saying, what you should be doing. And what you may be doing may be quote unquote weird. I say weird is just different. Yeah. Weird is just whoever don't understand it just don't know it. So they call it weird. But at the end of the day, this is your purpose. And this is embedded in you. This is in your spirit. This is who you are. And eventually you're going to be happier than most people that have a lot of money because a lot of people make a lot of money and still not happy, Alex. And that's the one thing that I was able to grow and see that, man, it ain't always about making a lot of money. Like, dude, like we all need, we can all use more money. But bro, if you waking up every morning doing something that you're happy with, like there's there's no substitute for that, man. And you got cats that's chasing this money, chasing this bag, and they selling their souls for the bag. Mm-hmm. They're not really being who they are for the bag. And when you lay your head on that pillow at night, you can't run from you. I always say that's God. You could, you could be laying right next to somebody that don't have a clue on how you're feeling, but right now you can't sleep because you're out of pocket. You're not happy, and it's because you're not being you. Always be you and don't change for nobody. I don't care what religion you are, what sex you are, what your sexual preference is. Do you. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about trying to be somebody you ain't. And you be, man, that to me is the key to happiness. Yeah, Pur- key to happiness. purpose, finding your, finding your passion, Mm-hmm. link that with your purpose and then if you look hard enough and deep enough man that can become your profession and it's going to become your happiness and it's going to make money for you because you're going to figure out a way because that's what you enjoy doing reason why i say it's happy and it may be different from anybody else because what happens is you start to migrate to that community you start to make friends that's like-minded mm-hmm. that way you ain't got to hide who you are you start to gravitate to that kind of community i'm gonna grab it i don't want to sit around dudes that's gonna watch baseball all day i can't do it but man if we're gonna watch the lakers and watch some hoop and watch boxing i'm good 
That's what I'm saying. Somebody that want to code, they ain't going to enjoy hanging around a bunch of athletes. They want to go and be around cats that's code. And they want to go around cats that's building and being architects. And that kind of, that's where they're going to be good in their space. Yeah. And that's embedded in you. You know, you, you got to go after it. That's it. Man, Curtis, you know, I can talk to you all day, man. But it's, <laughs> it's, been, it's been enlightening, man. And I, I definitely appreciate you being a guest on The Shark Effect, my man. Hey, Alex, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate what you're doing, bro. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm the homeschool teacher, so I got some time after one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my man. <laughs> I appreciate you, boss. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Shark Effect Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at thesharkeffect.com. Thanks for listening. It's here, finally. My book, The Ultimate Playbook for Higher Achievement. You can get it on Amazon and the uh, paper paperback version or you can get it on kindle and who this book is an in, intentionally created for is for those who are looking to transition whether you was an athlete or an executive or a successful entrepreneur or whatever if you're looking to transition into something different this book can help you I break it down. I lay down the foundation of who you want to be. I have a chapter in there that breaks down and boils down leadership, which is influence. And you got to understand these 10 influencers that can help you with decision making, that can help you with influencing others. And how are you influenced? I have chapters in there that really breaks down my system of assignment, alignment, and adjustment. Um, recognizing the power of your environments is a chapter developing your own procedures creating relationship roadmaps using adversity to your advantage right because we all go through tough times but how do you flip it how do you use it to power you okay and then developing your own standards so these are things that can help anybody not just not just athletes now there's some stories in there you know, that covers topics that that resonate with athletes. But I think overall, this book can help um, anyone who is looking to transition into becoming successful in something new, something different. Okay, so make sure check it out. Amazon, the ultimate playbook for high achievement.